Tonight, tonight, um, not be long. We have a big meeting after the service about the parade. But I am going to be a little bit technical tonight, all right? Uh, this is Bible study night is what this is. And so tonight we're going to be just a little bit technical. But I need to explain just one phrase in the Bible as a lead up to the next couple of weeks. And so tonight... You just got to stay with me on purpose. But in our study of prophetic scripture, we're using, of course, the book of Revelation as our base. And I have said that at times we will step outside of the book of Revelation to fill in gaps, details, events that are not covered in Revelation. I would have liked it if the Holy Spirit had grouped all prophetic scripture together in one book and laid it out very neatly in chronological order with a timeline. But that is not how the Bible presents it. Prophecy is given through the sermons and the writings of men over a long period of time. And as Bible students, it is our task to gather in all of the different threads of information and weave them into one fabric of truth. I heard one old preacher say that the reason why God did that is to weed out lazy students. And if you're a lazy student, this is not the kind of study for you. So we have spent a couple of weeks introducing the subject and appreciating the opening lines of Revelation chapter one. We've spent three weeks in that chapter. In chapters two and three, we enter into what is called the church age is represented by the seven churches of Asia Minor. That is the dispensation that we are currently in. And it will end at the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation. But before we go into Revelation 2 and 3 and look at those seven churches and what they represent, there is a broader scope of time that, that we need to examine and for that, we need to take our first step out of Revelation and look at some passages in the Old Testament and see if we can tie them in to Revelation. Now in Luke chapter 21, I, I want to begin reading in verse number 20, and I'm picking it up right in the middle of a conversation. But in Luke chapter 21, the Lord Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He said, when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child <coughs> and to them that give suck in those days. Well, there should be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. They shall fall by the edge of the sword, shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now in Luke chapter 21, we have Luke's condensed version of the Olivet Discourse. You read that in Matthew 24 and 25 and in Mark chapter 13. Jesus has introduced this subject by predicting the complete destruction of the temple. You'll find that in verse number six. As for these things which ye behold, 
the days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. He's talking about the temple that, by the way, took place in A.D. 70. That prompted the disciples to ask the question, when shall these things be in the next verse? So Jesus begins to lay out signs of the end times. He spoke first of signs concerning Jerusalem, and then later in the chapter he talks about signs concerning the nations and the nature, the nature itself, wars and, and pestilence and those kinds of things. And in the middle of that discussion, he gives a very key prediction of end time events in verse 24. He says, they shall fall by the edge of the sword. They shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That's what I want to talk to you about tonight. The times of the Gentiles. Now you'll notice that this prophecy concerns the city of Jerusalem. He's talking about that city. Jerusalem is one of the oldest cities in the world. It is the most important city in history and prophecy. The city of Jerusalem is mentioned over 800 times by name in the Bible. It is the only city that we are commanded to pray for the peace of. And it's the only city where God says he has set his name upon that city forever. Ever since Israel was reborn as a nation in 1948, there has been a struggle over control of the city of Jerusalem. It's an interesting thing that in 1947, the year before Israel was declared as a state, the United Nations passed a resolution, Resolution 181, that said that Jerusalem must, be, must remain an international city, that nobody can claim it as their capital. In 2017, President Trump made great news when he declared that we were moving our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and was recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. When he did, the United Nations immediately passed a resolution and 128 nations condemned the move. Just a handful of small nations followed the United States lead and recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Australia was one of those nations. And then a couple of years later, Australia reversed course and recognizes Tel Aviv as the capital. Even though Israel claims Jerusalem as its capital. Every liberal news media organization will always refer to Tel Aviv as the capital of Israel. Well, what right do other nations have to tell another nation what city it can use as its capital? Doesn't happen anywhere in the world except in Israel. No city in the world has suffered more in history than Jerusalem. <coughs> there have been at least 118 conflicts over Jerusalem. The city's been destroyed twice. It's been attacked 75 times, captured and recaptured 44 times, has been the scene of innumerable riots and revolts. It is the most loved city and it is the most hated city. And the peace of the world depends upon the peace of Jerusalem. 
So Jesus points to that city and he tells the disciples that Jerusalem is going to be trodden down of the Gentiles for a time. He calls it the time of the Gentiles and it's a term that is used nowhere else in the Bible. Now, there is another time. Thank you, brother. I hope you wasn't sitting down taking it for yourself. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I said thank you too early and put you on the spot, didn't I? Huh? Appreciate that. There's another phrase in the Bible that is very familiar, and it's Romans 11:25. Let me read it to you. I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. So you have the times of the Gentiles, you have the fullness of the Gentiles, similar phrases, but not synonymous phrases. The times of the Gentiles has to do with Gentile domination over that city. Those times are already in play in Jesus' day, would continue to the second coming. I believe that Jesus was predicting a near event when Jerusalem would be destroyed in AD 70. But I believe he was still predicting a far event when he would return as king of Israel and establish his throne in Jerusalem. But the fullness of the Gentiles in Romans 11 <coughs> has nothing to do with Jerusalem or Gentile world powers. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is describing how that Israel has been set aside temporarily and God is dealing in dispensation with Gentiles. God is building his church made up primarily of Gentiles. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and God only knows when that is, and the church is raptured out, God will then again begin his dealings with Israel. So blindness in part has happened to Israel, that's today, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so I just point that out so that you don't confuse the two terms. Now, if you go back in history, you could find out when Jerusalem began to be trodden down of the Gentiles when it fell under Gentile control. And that would be the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. That beginning was in 587 BC. I'll show that to you in just a minute. When Nebuchadnezzar captured the city and he either captured or scattered all of the inhabitants of that city. Then looking forward through history, I can look through the lens of prophecy and I can find when Gentile control of the city will be ended. That is when Jesus Christ returns, when he establishes his throne in Jerusalem over that city. So Jesus predicts that Jerusalem will be under Gentile control. It will be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And with those two bookends of time defining the times of the Gentiles, then I know when that time frame is. Now, that's important because there's two chapters in your Bible, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, that we'll not get to tonight, that describes those times in detail. <coughs> so take a minute with me, and let's go back in history for just a minute, all right? The complete destruction of Jerusalem took place in 587 B.C., but the struggle for the city actually began a lot earlier than that. If you go back as far as 609 BC, and we won't get wonky in the details, 
But Judah was caught in a tug of war between Egypt and the Babylonians. <coughs> in 609 BC, Jehoiakim became the 18th king of Judah. And he actually was installed by Necho, who was the Pharaoh of Egypt. Now, it was during this time that Assyria was fading as a world power, Babylon was rising in power, and Egypt was caught in the power struggle. Necho, Pharaoh, Pharaoh Necho was leading his army towards Syria, but it required that he pass his army through the land of Judah. He asked for permission. The king at that time was Josiah. Josiah said no. He sent his army out at Megiddo to meet the Egyptian army, and the Egyptian army defeated the army of Judah. Josiah, the godly king, by the way, was killed. You can read about it in 2 Kings 22. He was killed in that battle, and Judah became a vassal state of Egypt. Well, the Pharaoh continued north and west into Syria, and when he came back through the land of Judah, he found that Josiah's fourth oldest son, Jehoaz, had been named as the new king. However, since he was now in charge, he felt like that he had the right to name the new king. So he took Jehoaz into captivity, took him to Egypt where Jehoaz would die. He would be the first Judean king to die in exile. And then he took Eliakim, and he made Eliakim the king, imposed an annual tribute upon him. And then to add insult to injury, he renamed him and named him Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, the 18th king. In 605 BC, three or four years later, Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians invaded Judah and he took control of Judah out of the hand of the Egyptians. Nebuchadnezzar is probably the most familiar name or Gentile name in the Bible. He was the longest reigning king of the Babylonians, one of the most powerful men in history. When he took control of Judah, he left Jehoiakim as the king, but instead of paying tribute to Egypt, you now pay tribute to Babylon. This is the fix that he is in. Well, after about three years in 602 BC, the Egyptian Pharaoh again seized some of the land of Judah, namely Gaza, from the Babylonians. And Jehoiakim, seeing that, believes that the Babylonians are weakened. He decides this would be a good time to revolt against the Babylonians. So he put Nebuchadnezzar on notice that I'm not paying tribute to the Egyptians and I'm not paying tribute to you either. So Nebuchadnezzar responded by invading Judah this time killing Jehoiakim. When Jehoiakim was killed, his son Jehoiakim took his place. He was only 18 years old. He was a very wicked man. He lasted for three months. Nebuchadnezzar invades Jerusalem again. This time, Nebuchadnezzar raised the temple of Solomon, takes all the gold and the silver out of it, it takes it to Babylon deported 10,000 Jews to Babylon. Among them was a young man named Ezekiel, left only the poorest people left in Jerusalem. And when he left, he installed Zedekiah. That's an important name. None of the other names matter. That's an important name. He installed Zedekiah as his puppet king of Judah. Zedekiah would be the king for 11 years. 
<coughs> in the end, he would rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, which would lead to Nebuchadnezzar leading his final assault against Jerusalem. 587 BC, he comes back. This time, he completely destroys the city. This time, they tear all of the walls of the city down. This time, they tear every stone of the temple down. All of the palaces are destroyed. And here is the reason why that's important tonight. Zedekiah then becomes the last king in the line of David to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Zedekiah had been warned by Jeremiah the prophet, by the way, that God would come against him if he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And that's exactly what happened. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both prophesy about Zedekiah. He is the last king in the Davidic line to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. There's a passage of scripture in your Bible I want you to turn to it. It's Ezekiel chapter 21, where Ezekiel prophesies not to Zedekiah, but about Zedekiah. He says that God has prepared a sharp sword against him, that sword being Babylon. Look at Ezekiel chapter 21, and I'll pick it up in verse number nine. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord, say, a sword. A sword is sharpened and also furbished. It is sharpened to make a sore slaughter. It is furbished that it may glitter. Should within make mirth, it contemneth the rod of my son as every tree. He's talking about Babylon's what he's talking about. He says in verse 12, cry and howl, son of man. For it should be upon my people, it should be upon all the princes of Israel. Tears by reason of the sword should be upon my people. Smite therefore upon thy thigh because it is a trial. And what if the sword contemn even the rod? It should be no more, saith the Lord God. Look at verse 24. And verse 24 seems to be addressed directly or specifically about Zedekiah. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, because ye have made your iniquity to be remembered in that your transgressions are discovered, so that in all your doings your sins do appear. <coughs> because I say that ye are come to remembrance, ye should be taken with the hand. And thou, profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come when iniquity shall have an end. Thus saith the Lord God, listen to this, remove the diadem and take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is and I will give it him. The Lord is saying that I'm gonna take the crown off of Zedekiah and it will be no more until he come whose right it is. Ezekiel is telling us that in the judgment of Judah, that Zedekiah will be the last ruler to sit on the throne of David until it is occupied by Messiah. Look back at chapter 19, chapter 19. Ezekiel 19 is written as a funeral eulogy where Ezekiel 
predicts the future of the nation. And just read this with me quickly. Moreover, take thou up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, what is thy mother? A lioness? She lay down among lions. She nourished her whelps among young lions. And she brought up one of her whelps. It became a young lion. <coughs> and it learned to catch the prey. It devoured men. The nations also heard of him. He was taken in their pit. And they brought him with chains into the land of Egypt. He's talking about Jehoaz. That 18 year old that, that they installed as king. And the Pharaoh said, no, I install who I want to. Took him to Egypt. That's who he's talking about. Verse number five, this is Zedekiah. Now when she saw that she had waited and her hope was lost, then she took another of her whelps and made him a young lion. He went up and down among the lions. He became a young lion. He learned to catch the prey and devoured men. And he knew their desolate palaces and he laid waste their cities and the lamb was desolate and the fullness thereof by the noise of his roarings. Then the nation set against him on every side from the prophecies and spread their net over him. He was taken in their pit they put him in wards and chains and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him into holes that his voice should no more be heard upon the mountains of Israel. This is what happened to Zedekiah. And then in verse 10 through 14, watch this. Thy mother is like a vine in thy blood, planted by the waters. She was fruitful and full of branches by reason of many waters. She had strong rods for the scepters of them that bear rule. And her stature was exalted among the thick branches and she has peered in her height with the multitude of her branches, but she was plucked in pure fury. She was cast down to the ground and the east wind dried up her fruit. Her strong rods were broken and withered. The fire consumed him and now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty ground. Watch this. And fire is gone out of her rod of her branches which hath devoured her fruit so that she hath no strong rod to be a scepter to rule. There was no strong rod. There was no man to have a scepter to rule in Judah. By the way, when, when Jeremiah prophesied to Zedekiah against rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, Jeremiah told him exactly what was going to happen. And when Nebuchadnezzar came that final time against Jerusalem, he captures Zedekiah, marched Zedekiah and his sons to Babylon. He forced Zedekiah to watch every one of his sons be executed and then put his eyes out, put him in prison in Babylon until he died. And that marked the end of the kingdom of Judah. There is no more scepter in Israel. There is no more state of Israel. There is no king in Israel. There is no standing temple. It is all God. And the city of Jerusalem has been trodden under of the foot of the Gentiles. Now, I know this is technical. I, I know that tonight. But you've got to know this before we look at Daniel 2 and before we look at Daniel chapter 7. This begins what Jesus calls the time of the Gentiles. And it will last until Jesus comes and sets up his throne in Jerusalem. Now, there will be pockets of time when bands of Jews will take control of Jerusalem. Even tonight, Israel controls part of Jerusalem. But there has been no king in the Davidic line to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And remember the prophecy in Ezekiel 21 and verse 27. 
where it says remove the diadem, take off the crown. This shall be no more. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more. And this is so telling unto he comes whose right it is and I will give it him. Now, this is a momentous time. The nation of Israel has so rejected God that God has rejected the nation of Israel. What has happened in the Babylonian captivity is the reverse of the Exodus. Israel had been born in captivity and God brought them out of captivity into the wilderness. Well, they've rejected God and in their idolatry and immorality, God has now allowed them to go back into captivity at the hand of the cruel barbarians. Not forever, but he's going to allow a nation to take them into captivity and they are going to disappear as a nation and his focus turns toward Gentile concerns. By the way, that would happen again. The Jewish leaders would so reject their Messiah that God would reject them. And again, he would set them aside and turn toward Gentiles. That's why when you get to Acts chapter two, speaking in tongues, that is not a sign of grace. It is a sign of judgment. God had spoken the Jewish language, but they rejected him. But in Acts chapter two, he begins to speak all of the Gentile tongues, symbolizing to Israel that I'm turning away from the nation and I'm turning toward Gentiles. If you understand Acts chapter two, speaking in tongues is not grace. It is judgment is what it is. Now let me give you this and then I'm gonna be done. And I, I told you it was technical tonight, all right? But at the beginning of this time, the times of the Gentiles, God spoke to the nation through another prophet named Daniel. Someone has said that Daniel contains the ABCs of prophecy. Revelation has the XYZs of prophecy. It is impossible to understand Revelation without studying Daniel. So it is striking to me that the first prophecy in Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, is not given to Israel. But it is a prophecy that is given to a Gentile king, Nebuchadnezzar, about Gentile powers. There are two great prophecies in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, that give in detail, amazing detail, this time that Jesus calls the times of the Gentiles. By the way, this is interesting to me. There are two passages in the Old Testament and only two that were written originally in Aramaic, not Hebrew, but Aramaic. One of those passages is in the book of Ezra. The second passage is in Daniel chapter two through seven, particularly Daniel two verse four to the end of chapter seven. Originally was written in Aramaic, a language of the Gentile nations. God was speaking to Gentiles in that passage about their time. Now watch this. Stay with me. I'm almost done. This is, if you get back to this technical stuff, then next week we'll shout and get to the image and the big toes and all of that, all right? <laughs> Here's what happens. Here's how your Bible's put together. 
Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a mighty image that consists of various kinds of metals. The image has a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, a belly and thighs of bronze, and then the legs and feet are of iron and clay mixed. That image, as I'm sure you know, represents the outline of world history over the next several hundred decades. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. We will look at Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar built an idol in the desert and orders every man to come out and bow down to it. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to. So they are thrown into the fiery furnace. Heat is seven times hotter. And they meet God in the furnace and God delivers them from the fire. It is a demonstration that during the times of the Gentiles, the Jews will be supernaturally preserved. During the past 2,500 years, the Jews have been hounded and hunted and haunted and hated in the furnace of persecution. But God has supernaturally preserved them in that fire. In Daniel chapter 4, the intent of that chapter is to reveal that the long course of the Gentile world, that the powers of the world would be marked with pride. Because in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar lifts his heart with pride. He says, is not this great Babylon that I have built up for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power for the honor of my majesty? God brought him low. God brought him low with seven years of mental insanity, turning him to a beast in the field. But the rise of the Gentile powers is marked by pride. In Daniel chapter 5, it illustrates that during the times of the Gentiles, men will turn their hearts toward idolatry. A new king, Belshazzar, throws a party of all powers, bring out the vessels that were brought from the temple, Solomon's temple, and let's drink and party and revelings and riotings. But as they drank and as they praised their idols, God wrote their sentence on the wall with a hand. Daniel chapter 6, we have the final affront to God during the times of the Gentiles when man attempts to deify himself. Darius, the kings of the Medes and Persians, passes a decree. Now for 30 days, no man can pray to their God, but must pray to him. All prayers directed to the king. And Daniel could not comply with such a silly command. When he continues to pray to his own God, they throw him in the lion's den. And Daniel, I believe, stands for the Jews during the tribulation who refuse to worship the Antichrist by bowing to his image. And the Antichrist will seek to, to persecute those faithful Jews. And God will supernaturally protect them at Basra for three and a half years, just like he kept Daniel in the lion's den. Then Daniel chapter 7, I call it God's animal farm. Every dream that Daniel interprets in the book of Daniel is somebody else's dream. But in Daniel chapter 7, he has his own dream. He sees a vision of a beast coming out of the sea. It looks like a lot of different animals. And the animals of Daniel chapter 7 parallel the image of Daniel chapter 2. It's a vivid description of those world powers. Now, we're going to look at both passages, Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, Two different weeks. 
some of the most difficult passages in the Bible, but some of the most absolutely amazing prophecies in the Bible, how that God lays out the course of the Gentile world hundreds of years before it ever takes place. Now, I know that's a lot of information and not a whole lot of inspiration. I understand that. But I'm trying to lay out the prophetic scheme in a chronological sequence. And the next stage is the time of the Gentiles. And Jesus said that the city would be trodden underfoot of the Gentiles until those times are fulfilled. Laid out in amazing detail in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Those will be the two next chapters that we deal with. And then we'll go back to Revelation in our study of Revelation. Are you still with me?